Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. In what has become a kind of tradition at Deep Dive, we're going to use the last episode of the year to recap what our life and culture team liked by way of film, anime, books, and gaming this year. We've been running a bunch of year-end pieces that feature a range of topics, so music, restaurants, gender, and you can find those in the newspaper or on our website at japantimes.co.jp. For now, let's get to the culture. With me today, assembling like the various limbs of a giant robot that will save the city, are Japan Times culture editor Alyssa I. Smith. Hello. Culture critic Tu Hung Ha. Hi. And making his debut, lifestyle editor and gaming enthusiast Owen Ziegler. Hello, everybody. So to celebrate the end of the year, I've brought in some sparkling wine. Ooh, nice. Um, okay, I'm not really good at opening these. Is that why it's your job? You can, you can <laughs> yeah, do it. Kind of We've been it waiting all year. Did you make me do people. this last year? I did this two years ago, actually, on a podcast with Oscar. Oh, here we go. Oh! Hey! <laughs> Very nice. Sounds festive. Okay, while I uh, pour out some drinks for my colleagues, we're going to bring you a discussion I had with anime writer Matt Schley last week. Now, we recorded before the North American release of Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. But according to a report in Variety, the movie made $12.8 million in its debut weekend and became the first original anime production to top the U.S. box office. So while we toast to Miyazaki, our colleagues, and Owen's deep dive debut, here's my chat with Matt. Hello, Matt. Hey, Sean. So last weekend saw the release of The Boy and the Heron in North America, it was released in Japan in July, and you wrote about the film's performance in this country last week in your year-end anime rap. I did indeed. And I liked your lead in it. You asked if anime-loving time travelers from 2013 jumped forward a decade to this year, what would they be more surprised to learn? That there was a new Hayao Miyazaki film in theaters or that it wasn't the biggest hit of the year? Can you explain what you meant by this? Yeah, sure. So, like, 10 years ago, 2013 where our fictional time travelers are coming from. Mm. Hayao Miyazaki has just come out with what is supposed to be his final film, which is called The Wind Rises. Right. After that film comes out, they do a big press conference, and he says, I'm done, I'm not going to make any more feature films. I'm going to go make some shorts or do some comics or whatever, but I'm getting old, it's time for me to retire. So if you were to jump forward a decade from there, you might go, wait, wait, didn't he say he was going to retire? <laughs> yeah. What's going on here? Yeah. He's got a new movie out. Um, so that would be surprising, um, but it might also be surprising to these guys that there's a new Miyazaki movie out and it's not the biggest hit of the year mm. because ever since the nineties, every time a Miyazaki film came out here, it was kind of automatically the number one of the year, huge smash hits for a couple solid decades there. So this year, the box office was filled with anime and Let's not say that The Boy in the Hair didn't do big numbers, because it did. It, mm. it was a very successful film. But there are about three anime films that did better than it did. Okay. Yeah. So what stopped Miyazaki? Because he's like, what are we calling him? The godfather of anime? The king of anime? Sure. Uh, <laughs> what, what or who stopped him from taking the number one spot at the box office? Yeah, well, there's a couple factors here. There's the fact that Studio Ghibli which is his animation studio that he helped co-found, um, didn't 
advertise the movie. Right. Okay. Um, which I think we talked about earlier this year. We did. Yeah. There might be an alternate universe somewhere where they ran the typical trailers and press junkets and stuff for it. And it ended up being the highest grossing film of the year. Who knows? Mm. But the fact is they didn't. So there's that. And then there's the fact that um, over the past decade, there's been a general acceptance of anime films by mainstream audiences that aren't necessarily directed by Miyazaki or by Disney, for example, mm. which isn't anime in the way that we think of it as Japanese animation, but it is animation. Right. Yeah. So that's why. You mentioned there was three animated films that came ahead. What films were those? So number one is uh, animated, not necessarily Japanese animation. It was the Super Mario Brothers film. Um, not Japanese, but based on a Japanese property. Did you see that? I did. How was it? Meh. How was it compared to the uh, <laughs> Super Mario film that you reviewed for yeah. us that starred Bob Hoskins? Man, I love that movie. <laughs> Gets a bad rap. Lovely film. Um, no, the Super Mario Brothers movie, I can see why it made a lot of money. Mm. Um, it's got the nostalgia for the people who play the games. It's very kid-friendly as well. I mean, I get it. It didn't just make money in Japan. It made money all over the world. Right. So there's that. Um then there was the latest Detective Conan film. This is a long-running series of films about kind of a pint-sized uh, detective. And this was specifically Detective Conan Black Iron Submarine. Yeah. So these Conan films come out um, like clockwork about once a year uh -huh. around Golden Week in the April-May period when kids have school off and things like that. And they, they tend to do very well. Okay. But this year particularly, it's the highest grossing Conan film yet. Why? It could be that it's centered around a very popular character mm. uh, this time around. People were excited to see what was going to happen. Okay. And then uh, we've got the film called The First Slam Dunk, which came out technically in 2022, but at the very end of the year. Uh -huh. And uh, that is a film sequel, side quill to a long-running manga and anime called Slam Dunk, which is about basketball. Mm. It was directed by the guy who wrote the original manga, who'd never made a movie before. Okay. But it was super good. And that did huge numbers, and it was in theaters for months and months and months. Right, right. So those three films ended up beating Miyazaki as Kind of were. usurping the king. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. So who else performed well this year when it came to animated films and TV series even? Mm -hmm. Like, what mm -hmm. should I be checking out when I have downtime over the holidays? Sure. I mean, in terms of anime, we've got the three films we've mentioned up top. On TV, we had series like Oshinoko, which is kind of about the dark side of the pop idol industry in Japan. Uh -huh. That did um, really well. It kind of crossed over to non-mainstream audiences, uh, thanks in part to the opening theme song, which is called Idol by Yoasobi, which right. was the kind of the biggest hit single of the year. Yeah, we mentioned that um, in a discussion with Patrick St. Michel about mm -hmm. the year in music, yeah. And that kind of shows, too, how all these different elements of media cross over, right? Mm. The song is popular, so the anime does well. The anime is popular, so the song does well. That's how they kind of do these things. Yeah. You know, that series was also notable in that it had a 90-minute first episode as opposed to a typical 30-minute first episode. Okay. And that allowed them to tell, it's based on a manga, and it allowed them to tell um, more of the story in one go and kind of hook people. Right. We also had a lot of season two or season three, season four of very popular series. There was a new season of Demon Slayer. Okay. There was a new season of Jujutsu Kaisen. And then we had the final season of Attack on Titan, finally. Right. Um, ten years in the making. Uh-huh. So. Um, did you watch that? I did not. 
Okay. I kind of got lost halfway through on, on Attack on Titan. <laughs> gotcha. You know, that started airing 10 years ago. Yeah. But um, obviously, it's got a ton of fans, and people were excited to see that close. So. Do you know how people received it? From just anecdotally, people really liked it. Yeah. Okay. Our, our mutual buddy, Eric, really liked it. Right. So, this is Eric Margolis. This is Eric Margolis. Yeah, he's a writer for Japan, Japan Times contributor. So. <laughs> so if he was here, I could tell you more about it. Gotcha. Yeah. I read the spoilers, <laughs> so I know what happened, but yeah. Just kind of on that, given anime's current popularity, especially mm-hmm. overseas, I think there was like a One Piece ad at a, what was it, a sports game or something like that? Yeah, some tie-up with an NFL team or right. something like that. Yeah. yeah. It was a yeah. One Piece, yeah. Yeah. Are we in a golden age of anime? Yeah, that's a complicated question. I mean, again, in terms of pure amount of content, especially again, when we're looking at the feature film side of things, you've got a lot to choose from. Mm. That is for sure. You've got also a lot of stuff that's making a lot of money at the box office. If you look at some of the top ranked films, just the last five years or so, you've got a few films by Makoto Shinkai, Suzume, Your Name. You've got the first Slam Dunk again, which did really well. Um, the Demon Slayer film that came out in the middle of the pandemic and mm-hmm. is now the number one film in Japan of all time. So people are really digging this content, obviously, and there's a lot more of it because producers can see that it that it makes money, right? Mm. I th- think that where I would hesitate to call it a golden age of anime is in that because producers are seeing that it can make all this money, we're seeing these films that are... Um, don't take a lot of risks, you could say. Right. That really target a very general audience, which isn't inherently a bad thing. There are mm. good films that target the whole family. True. But you almost walk out of some of these films and think that they weren't made by a single visionary director. They were made by a committee in a room mm. thinking, okay, we need to hire this voice actor because he's popular with those under 25 and we need to hire uh, this guy because he appeals to the to the over 35 crowd. And mm. again, we talked about Yoasobi and Idol. Yeah. I think with Oshinoko, it's a perfect fit because it's a show about idols and music and things like that. Mm. Other times it can feel a bit forced. You watch a film and it's got an ending theme song that doesn't fit the style of, or theme of the film at all. Right. But it's by the, the band that's popular right now. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot of that when it comes to big budget anime. Is there anything that you're kind of excited about for 2024? Yes. Um, which is a great question because I don't want to come off just sounding like a grumpy, a grumpy guy. <laughs> there are some really interesting directors working in the industry today, despite all of these kind of creative uh, restrictions. Um, there's a director named Naoko Yamada, who's known for the film A Silent Voice, okay. which came out a few years ago. She's got a new film coming out next year, which is called Your Color. It looks very interesting. Very little details about it so far. Mm. I'm expecting that to be very good. There's a director named Sunao Katabuchi whose last film was called um, In This Corner of the World, a very, very well-done World War II film. And he's got a film. I don't think it's been officially announced for next year, but it's in the works, at least. Okay, uh, It's called Morning Children. It takes place in the Heian period, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And he's been going around showing a few minutes of footage of, of that, and it looks incredible. So mm-hmm. there's that coming out. There's a director named Kenji Iwaisawa, who came out with a this independent, quirky film called Ongaku a few years ago, Okay, which took years to make. It was an independent film, almost drawn by himself only. Oh, wow. He's got a film coming out called Hina, uh, which also looks pretty incredible. So there's good stuff on the horizon for sure. Okay, so maybe that golden age is 
<laughs> yet to come. Yet to come. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Okay, let's get a cheers. 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 Oh, oh. <laughs> careful. Okay, so we're back. And thanks again to Matt Schley for speaking to us about anime in 2023. Did everyone here catch The Boy and the Heron when it came out? I think I'm the only one who hasn't seen it. I did. I, I was on this podcast talking about it. Yes. With Matt Schley. <laughs> you saw it the day it opened, right? I went a couple of days um, after it opened. I saw it in Miyazaki for fun. No, no, no reason. No relation, no reason. Um, but yeah, Alyssa, we haven't actually talked about it. What did you What did you think when you saw it? I don't think I'm the only person who walked out of the theater being a little bit confused. Mm. I read the book that it's loosely based on about a year before the film came out. The book is called How Do You Live by Genzaburo Yoshino. What's the Japanese title? <laughs> okay. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> Um, so, right, I read the book beforehand as kind of prep, and I was surprised that it's it's quite a departure. It's like not even the same story, is it? It's not at all. There's one scene that references the book where the main character, he finds a copy of the book that his mother gifted to him. And that's basically the only time I was reminded of mm. the original book. So my opinion is I need to see it again, and mm. I'm looking forward to watching it in English as well. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I think I also was very confused. <laughs> the plot was a mess. Meandering. Yeah, meandering and chaotic. Mm. I still enjoyed myself because it was the first time I was seeing a Miyazaki movie, like, as it came, at the time it came out in theaters. So, like, I got a cinematic experience that I hadn't had before, and it was just so beautiful. I, it was just, he's just, every frame was, like, sweet <laughs> yeah i completely agree with you about watching it in theaters for the first time and it felt so immersive and mm. it's kind of a familiar world that i you know grew up watching so it was it was nice in that sense to like be back there where would you rank this in terms of miyazaki's movies is this mm. should i get myself to a theater right now or should i wait until i can watch it at home i think if you're going home to the u.s and you can get a chance to see it because it's out right now there I think it's cool to see in the theater. Mm -hmm. Ranking it, it's definitely not his best movie. It's it's not in my top three. <laughs> it's not in my top three, yeah. So Matt's verdict on anime is that this isn't quite a golden age, but it's more of like an age of plenty. So let me start by asking all of you, do any of you find that when you're consuming Japanese entertainment, you're more likely to be checking out anime rather than films or TV series with real-life actors? For me, this year, the two Japanese films that I saw in theaters were anime films. So I definitely think that's the case. Okay. So I saw The Boy and the Heron, and I also saw Blue Giant, which is a film about three young men. They're aspiring jazz musicians in Tokyo. And I'm really glad I got to see it in theaters because I'm not sure the film would have affected me as much if I'd seen it at home on my laptop. Mm-hmm. So for me, and probably a lot of people who watched it, the soundtrack really makes the film. It was composed by jazz pianist Hiromi Uehara, and it was really exciting and vibrant <laughs> and just super memorable. So the storyline is a bit cheesy, um, but it is very satisfying. And, you know, it's, it's about having big dreams and wanting to succeed as a musician, but also having this camaraderie with people who are aspiring for the similar things that you are. 
So Blue Giant was actually, it was a sleeper hit here, so much so that the film was re-edited and given a second release. I would like to see that before it leaves theaters. Do either of you have an answer to the question? or? I do not like watching live-action Japanese entertainment. It is difficult to watch. I think the acting right. style that's prevalent here is not my preferred acting style. It's okay. very... It's like they're trying to be in an anime. Mm. Well, you might feel like they're acting like they're in an anime because a lot of live action films are actually adaptations of manga and anime. I do think that's why. Yeah. I just find like the way of emoting not very believable or good. Right. Yeah. I think that's why I've just kind of stopped watching anime altogether. Oh, anime. Yeah. Because of what you're talking about, that Mm. kind of over the top emoting. Uh, I probably tend more towards live action Japanese entertainment. Uh, oh, so you're going the other way. I'm yeah. going the other way, right? Huh. But not drama, not kind of not these these uh, presentations of fiction. One show on Netflix that I've really been enjoying is in Japanese. The title is Talk Saliba. Okay, last one standing in Japanese. It's just this. It's this collection of stand up comedians who just kind of take turns telling these funny monologues. Where it's kind of the same thing that you're talking about too. Where it does have a Japanese sensibility to it that, especially with humor, is not going to resonate with me so much. Uh, but some of them do, and it's been really enjoyable. So I highly recommend that one. Right. Maybe that's one we can check out then over the break. It's pretty good. Not quite anime, but still not human. Uh, Godzilla is doing really well overseas, or should I say Godzilla minus one? Yeah. Um, it's kind of taken over the box office in the U.S., it came out on December 1st mm-hmm. in North America. And since then, it has become the highest grossing Japanese live action film, bringing in just over $25 million after its second weekend, which is pretty impressive. Okay. Um, and so far, it's grossed over $51 million globally. That's interesting. Japanese film is having kind of like a good month yeah. uh, to round off the year. We're really ending the year on a high note for Japanese culture. <laughs> Well, Mark Schilling is one of the foremost authorities on Japanese film, as well as one of our critics. And he'll be writing about the various movies that won awards this year in a piece that's coming out. When's that coming out? This Friday. This Friday. Okay. But before we get off the topic of film, I did want to get everyone's thoughts on the other big film story of the year, Barbenheimer. Who wants to start with that? I want to hear Owen's thoughts. Okay, go on. <laughs> Finally, men get to weigh in on the issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Barbie was fantastic. I didn't really go in with super high expectations. I'm not really sure why, but even from the first shot, the uh, the callback to 2001, uh, it just, it, it was fantastic. Took you for a ride. Didn't really let go until the end. Did you wear pink? I didn't, but uh, probably <laughs> over 75% of the people in the theater did show it up in cowboy hats and pink onesies and... The whole get up, guys and girls. Wow. That's what I really enjoyed about Barbie. It was such an event. Um, I went with a group of maybe like 12 people or something like that. And most of us came in pink. So in Japan, there was some concern that Oppenheimer, uh, which is kind of like the sober yin to Barbie's neon pink yang, wasn't going to be released in Japan. Um, Alyssa, can you update us on what's going on with that? So while the whole Barbenheimer craze was going on overseas, People in Japan had a very different reaction towards um, combining this very lighthearted pink film (laughs) with um, a biopic about, you know, the the father of the atomic bomb Mm -hmm. for obvious reasons, I think. Um, So this summer there was the hashtag uh, no Barbenheimer that started trending and it 
wasn't clear whether the film was going to be released in Japan. Mm. I think one of the reasons that the film was delayed in coming out here was because um, its release date abroad was July 21st, which falls really close to the anniversary of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombings. Mm. But Mark Schilling, our film critic, he wrote back in July that Japanese distributors, they tend to wait until the fall or winter months to release films by big-name directors with major awards potential. Mm. Um, so it's not entirely surprising that they've kind of pushed back the release date. And I think earlier this week mm-hmm. or last week, it was finally announced that the film has a Japanese distributor and it's going to be coming out sometime next year. Right. Probably right in time for the Oscars. Right. Exactly. Are you guys interested in going to see Oppenheimer or did Barbie do it for you? I only saw Barbie. I'm not going to see Oppenheimer. Yeah. I think I'll watch Oppenheimer at home. It doesn't need to be a cinema experience for me. I say the same thing. And this is actually a conversation we had on last year's podcast, but it's a long movie, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Very long. Yeah. So I I don't know. I'm just kind of not feeling three hour plus movies these days. So Napoleon and Oppenheimer will do that at home. So last year we had Alyssa and Two on Deep Dive discussing books. What was the big book news this year? I think it has to be Haruki Murakami's new full-length novel. It's his first one in six years. Mm. It came out in April and there was a lot of hype ahead of it. So it's 1,200 Japanese manuscript pages. But I don't know if it was worth the wait. What do you think, Two? (laughs) I don't know. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> so actually, because we had so uh, Daniel Morales on the podcast before right. it was released. And he's kind of a Murakami fan. And I just was watching his Twitter feed as he got through the book. And he really didn't like it. Yeah. I think a lot of people were disappointed with it. First of all, I mean, there was a lot of hype because it had been a long time since his last release. And then... It was also a repurposing of an earlier premise in an earlier work from very early in his career. Mm. And uh, as I said, I didn't read it because I don't want to. But (laughs) (laughs) I did write a piece about the early reviews, both the like the critics takes and the and the readers ratings. Were they more on side with like what Daniel was saying? Yes. So they were just like confused. Mm. Um, The plot was very confusing. and. I think people felt very happy to be immersed in his kind of confusing world. Kind of echoed, I think, criticisms of the boy in the heron, actually. Mm -hmm. Is that fans were like, yay, it's him. And then other people were like, this is confusing as hell. Like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Well, there were a few other established writers that had disappointing releases this year, right, too? Mm, Yes. (laughs) We're going to have to get the sad horn out again (laughs) from last week. Yeah, so this year... Osama Dazai's uh, The Flowers of Buffoonery came out in English for the first time. It was originally published in 1935, but it was kind of like spin-off prequel to No Longer Human, which is like his massively famous work. Um, And uh, I reviewed it and, you know, I thought it was all right. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't really have the narrative ambiguity of No Longer Human, which made it really interesting, um, was lacking in this one. I also reviewed Yumiri's End of August, which was originally serialized in the early 2000s in both Japanese and in Korean. She's the author of uh, Tokyo Ueno Station. And uh, it was a massive undertaking for both writer and reader. Uh, kind of a slog, I thought, very hard to follow, 
very brutal, let's say. Brutal in terms of like having to read it or brutal in terms of content? Excellent question. Um, both. <laughs> both. Yeah, both. Yeah. Oh. It was very, yeah. It was a very violent read. <laughs> right. Two's library was like a slaughter scene this year. <laughs> Wasn't great. Um, yeah, I was really disappointed as well. Um, Barana Yoshimoto, who's the author of Kitchen, um, which is a big, big bestseller. Um, she also had a book from 1988 be published in English for the first time called The Premonition. And it was just a wah-wah for me. Mm. Just very saccharine sickly sweet, didn't really understand the point. Do you think this is a bad year or do you think this is a bunch of kind of like writers who were able to score hits in the past who maybe have just lost something? Well, it seems to me like um, publishers have realized how popular Japanese fiction is or Japanese literature is. Mm. And so they've gone back to look at the past works of established writers and they're bringing out new translations, but that doesn't mean it's like the best work of these writers. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, they're kind of like mining for um, content. For content, exactly. Right, right. So you have told us about the disappointing reads, <laughs> but was there anything you liked? I did really like an author that we reviewed in the paper this year um, who isn't Japanese, but her book talks about the Japanese occupation. It's called The Great Reclamation by Rachel Heng. Um, and she's Singaporean, and she writes about it's a love story that takes place in Singapore over its rapid modernization and like massive political upheaval. Mm. Um, and I thought it was really, really beautifully written. Um, and I learned a lot about Singapore and Singaporean history. I thought that was a really good addition to fiction that's coming out of Asia right now. So we're having a big swell of popularity from Asian American writers. But this is from a, this is from a, kind of Asia itself, mm. which I really enjoyed. Alyssa, did you have any books that were on your radar this year? Well, there is one book that I haven't read yet that mm. I want to, um, hopefully over the holiday break. It's called Hunchback by Saoru Ichikawa. She recently won the Akutagawa Literary Award, and she's the first writer with a physical disability to win this award. Mm. And um, I read Tu's review of it, and it seems really darkly funny. <laughs> <laughs> did you read it? Yeah, I did. Uh, listeners should note that it's not out in English yet, but... Um, you can read our review in the Japan Times. <laughs> yeah, nice plug. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, I enjoyed it. It was gross. It was gross. Gross. Gross <laughs> yeah. in what way? Um, well, I don't want to give too many spoilers. Sure. But um, it's very seedy at mm. times. Okay. And very bodily and um, some sketchy characters. Oh, and you've been pretty quiet in this conversation. <laughs> I have. <laughs> Is that by design? <laughs> No books this year? Uh, not as many as I should have been reading, but for good reason. Okay. Uh, in gaming, this has been one of the best years uh, in recent memory. Really? Uh, yeah. If you've heard of Metacritic, it's kind of what Rotten Tomatoes is to movies. Yes. Metacritic is for games. Um, and 2023 has had uh, 25 titles rated 90 or higher. Mm. And you have to go back 20 years to 2003 uh, to, to get to that level. Huh. And the average is about 15 titles rated 90 or higher. So it, 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 we're talking about going back to when the original Call of Duty was released, Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, mm -hmm. uh, Legend of Zelda Wind Waker. So it's really been a banner year. So what were the big games this year? So the consensus game of the year is Baldur's Gate 3. It's an action-adventure RPG uh, inspired by Dungeons & Dragons. It's really captured this kind of multi-year groundswell of interest in D&D &D, uh, okay. that kind of really gained steam during the pandemic of people 
really getting into D and D on online groups. Right. Uh, but in terms of Japanese studios, uh, they've kind of had a great year as well. There's been Street Fighter Six, Super Mario Brothers Wonder, Resident Evil Four remake, uh, Metroid Prime remaster, but if it wasn't for Baldur's Gate, then maybe the game of the year would have been Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. And two, you're in the middle of a playthrough yes. of Tears of the Kingdom, right? Yes. It has been months of sustained Zelda play. What has kept you coming back to it? I actually, at this point now, I'm starting to see the end and I do not want it to end. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I've actually slowed down a bit to and just kind of like look for more mushrooms. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because that's kind of the magic of Tears of the Kingdom, right? Which is why Breath of the Wild was so successful before, right? Zelda has been so formulaic for so long, but these two games really give you that sense of wonder and exploration. I couldn't believe you finished it so fast. Yeah. Well, and staying up until 5 a.m. most nights will do it for you. (laughs) Doing it for journalism. Oh, yeah. Just for journalism. No other (laughs) ulterior motive. Uh, But it's not perfect, right? Mm, No. Well, I thought like two games were quite similar in a kind of disappointing way. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, it's kind of remarkable that Tears of the Kingdom was able to use the same setting right, with a lot of the same characters, but still give that sense of wonder, right? But what do you do after this, right? Do you make another Breath of the Wild? A third? <laughs> I think two would be happy if there's just more mushrooms to look for. Is that yeah, what I'm getting? Yeah, like if I unlocked another level of mushrooms, <laughs> um, that would be I, That sounds like the uh, Super Mario Zelda hybrid that we need, the crossover. Well... Maybe there's an opportunity to do that in the Zelda movie. Right. The mm-hmm. long-awaited Zelda movie. Live-action Zelda, which I don't know how to feel about. <sighs> yeah, skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Last of Us worked. Last of Us worked. Uh, but, I mean, Last of Us was always a story-driven video right. game. The gameplay was not right. revolutionary or anything. What makes Zelda and what has always made Zelda work is the gameplay. The story is... I'm sorry to say, as a massive Zelda fan, it's always been kind of take it or leave it. It's, it's, you know, hero's journey, slay the demon, you know, rescue the princess. Yeah. And Link never, almost never, I should say, talks Uh in the video game, which is going to have to be the first thing that changes in a live action Zelda movie. Right. What if it doesn't? Can they pull off a movie where he just doesn't speak? <laughs> if if I was put in the director's chair, if <laughs> I was us. given the keys yeah, put it, by yeah, Nintendo. Put it down right now. I would make a Barbie-esque Zelda movie. Interesting. So uh, you take Barbie, which is, you know, this cultural institution. <laughs> yeah. And you turn it into a great movie that pokes fun at itself. Uh-huh. That's self-referential, right? And just has a good time with it. I think with a Zelda franchise that's been going on for decades and decades, you can't just tell a straightforward story. Mm. It's going to let so many people down. It's going to upset the diehards who want, you know, a, a, a hard take. It's going to bore casuals who don't know the first thing about Zelda. Yeah. Uh, but if you really have fun with it and you make these inside jokes to, you know, make the gamers laugh uh, and you tell a funny story uh, to interest people who have no interest in Zelda otherwise, which was kind of me coming to Barbie, I think mm-hmm. it's going to be a good time for all. I feel like the Lego movie did that. Yeah, they I mean, made something really boring into something really like political and satirical. But does Nintendo have the courage to oh, go that no. route? It's Absolutely gonna be not. boring. <laughs> or it's gonna be serious. It's gonna be self-serious for sure. It's gonna be Timothy Chalamet or yes. Tom Holland as Link. It's gonna be Michael Sarah. He's blonde. Michael Sarah? Tingle. Well, I think Link is gonna look really good in pink. Um, final question. Uh, to end this off, I wanted to ask you all what your high point was this year. Alyssa, let's start with you. My high point, my brother got married this summer and I oh, officiated congrats. the wedding. It was a lot oh, of wow. fun. Yeah. 
And then after that, I went to the Canary Islands and learned how to surf. Wow. Oh, were you good? No. <laughs> <laughs> Owen? Uh, mine was probably, I went to uh, Gion Matsuri okay. earlier oh, this yeah. year. Uh, and while I was in Kyoto, uh, just kind of going to and from the festival each day, I was actually at uh, Kiyomizudera for mm. the, I don't know, 10th time or whatever it was, where I happened to make a reservation at Yamamoto Menzo. It's this soba shop okay. uh, in eastern Kyoto. Mm. They only take day of reservations. Okay. Uh, so I had to get a late lunch and then I had to go to a, another uh, restaurant that I had reservations for two hours later. Oh, wow. But it was incredible. One of the best soba meals I've ever had. Highly recommended. Nice. Two? Um, I spent a week on a boat in Indonesia uh, just diving off of it. Oh, okay. An actual deep dive, a literal deep dive. Um, yes, a literal deep dive. Thank you, Sean. Um, <laughs> I've only gotten to diving in the last like year. Um, what I really like about it is that you just really can't overthink when you're down there um, mm. because you use up your air too fast. Okay. So you really, it's, it really forces you to focus and um, like monotask. And obviously what you're monotasking is insane and beautiful. So, hmm. yeah. Right on. Well, Alyssa, Owen too. Thank you very much for coming on the final uh, deep dive of the year. Happy New Year to all of you. My thanks again to Alyssa, to Owen and Matt. I'm joined now by deep dive producer Dave Cortez. Hey, Dave. Hey, Sean. So we ended that conversation by asking everyone their high points of the year. Um, Dave, I think my high point was working with you on this podcast. Oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> well, actually, I think both our high points have yet to come because we're both heading home for the holidays. That's true. That means that Deep Dive will be taking a holiday break and will return in mid-January. In the meantime, there's a lot to tide you over on our website. I mentioned that we are currently in the middle of doing a bunch of year-end wraps. But one story I wanted to mention was by Kaneko Takahara. Uh, not a year-end wrap, but kind of an explanation of what is currently going on with this big political funding scandal that's engulfing Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's Liberal Democratic Party. Something Dave, I'm sure, will be talking about when we're back from the break. Oh, I can't wait. Neither can I. Until then, thanks again to Dave, our colleagues at the Japan Times, particularly Jason Jenkins, who was called back to the news desk from the podcast halfway through the year. And thank you to everyone listening. Time is at a premium, and we really appreciate you spending it with us. Until next time, Deep Dive is produced by Dave Cortez. Our outgoing music is by Oscar Boyd. And our theme music is by Kazuto Okawa, the musician known as 4L. Happy New Year to you all. Yoyo Toshio and Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.